one of the most shocking aspects of life in Brazil to a foreigner is the electrical shower heads that we have here in Brazil. So even in Brazil, but also, but particularly in other countries, children are taught from a very young age that electricity and water do not mix. And I love, it's, it's really entertaining actually. The first time that uh, you interact with a foreigner when they step into or they see uh, an electric shower head and they look up and see those wires, electrical wires running out of the shower head into the wall. I, I love chatting with them about it. No, this is normal. It works. It's, it really, believe me. Um, shortly after uh, my wife and Ethan and I had arrived back in Brazil in early 2000s, we had an electric shower in our, in our bathroom and it stopped working. It stopped heating the water. And given the fact that I understand so much about home repair, um, I uh, asked a friend, um, who do you recommend that I call? Should I get an electrician? Is there a good electrician I can call to come fix my shower head? And he said, you don't need to call anybody. You just need to change the resistencia. That means element in English, change the element. And I said, oh, okay, all right, that's great. And I had no idea what a hesistencia was, let alone how to change it. But it seemed so obvious to this person, I didn't want to look stupid, you know, so I was just like, oh, okay, I'll just change the hesistencia. I had no clue, no idea. And so I had to ask someone else, first of all, what it was, and then secondly, where I could get it, and so they gave me those instructions. And then I've discovered that inside the little package of the element, there are step-by-step -step instructions for how to change it. I successfully changed it, and I felt like I could conquer the world. I was so proud of myself. Um, I'm pretty sure Glenn and Delton were part of that process somewhere along the way, but I'm not exactly sure what it was. Um, one of the principles that the book of Acts continually emphasizes to us is that we are to be witnesses of the gospel. Actually, not that we are to be, that we are. So as children of God, as followers of Jesus, as people who have repented of their sins and received the life of Christ into ourselves, we are witnesses for the Lord. So it's not an option. We're, we might be good witnesses, we might be bad witnesses, but we are witnesses. Now, not, fortunately, Scripture not only gives us that mandate, that you are my witnesses, says the Lord, but Scripture also shows us how to do that. It can be difficult when you hear a command, like, change the hesistencia, you're like, well, okay, but I have no idea how to do that. And similarly, some of us may know we're supposed to be evangelists. You know, we're supposed to be sharing about Jesus with other people. But we don't know how to do that. Now today, I want us to examine Paul's principles of evangelism. I've called it evangelism for beginners. I was going to call it evangelism for dummies, but I thought that might not be the best way to portray it. Even though we have all those books, you know, home repair for dummies, you know, computer, you know, Python for dummies, whatever. Anyway, so for beginners, evangelism for beginners, 
How do we put this into practice? If we are witnesses, how are we more effective witnesses? Luke in Acts gives us many examples. And they help contribute to our understanding of how to witness, how to share the gospel. But we're going to be looking today specifically at Paul's ministry in two different cities, in Thessalonica and then in Berea. And we're going to draw out of these ministries three principles of Paul's evangelism. Okay, and here are those principles. Content, his content of evangelism, his method of evangelism, and finally, the foundation for evangelism. Content, method, foundation. So I'll be reading the first 15 verses of Acts 17, Paul, the account of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and then in Berea. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The first aspect of Paul's evangelism is content. Now, when I changed my first hesistencia, I knew very little of all there was to know about electricity and water heating. I still know very little. But I didn't need to become a hydroelectrical engineer in order to replace it. I only needed to know the specific steps. Now, there were some very important things I needed to know, like make sure the power is off before you try to change it. So simple things, but important things. I didn't need to know all the peripheral principles. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, evangelizing people, there's so much that could be said, 
right? Theology is an extremely broad field. And while much of it is very good to know, someone who is just being introduced to Jesus doesn't need to know about the Calvinist-Arminian debate. They don't need to know about the councils of church history and all the various heresies that the church has had to address throughout her existence. We need to focus on what's essential. What does someone who is only just now being introduced to Jesus for the first time need to know? On what does Paul focus? The death and the resurrection of Jesus. When Paul begins his ministry in Thessalonica, the text says that he was teaching them, proclaiming, preaching, what? That the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That's the center point of the gospel. Now, of course, he explained the ramifications of that, why the Messiah is Jesus and why the Messiah needed to die and why and how the Messiah rose again. But those are all essential to his death and resurrection. Now, we know that Paul did love theology, and he was committed to good theology and right doctrine because all of his epistles deal with theology and doctrine. But the point is, those letters are being written to people who are already believers, people who already belong to God, those who already have received the life of Christ into themselves. So when they're first encountering Jesus, they don't need all that peripheral information. When sharing Jesus with people for the first time, Paul focuses in on his death and resurrection because these two events are the crux of salvation and the crux of all of history. And so I I bring this up today, of course, because it's in our text, but also because these are two factors that it can be really hard for us to talk to other people about. Because it almost seems like a fairy tale, right? That this guy, Jesus, died and he rose again. He lived and he's still alive today. And it's easier for us to speak, right, more generally about God, about being good, about the fact that God loves you and that God wants to uh, make you feel better and God wants to provide for your needs and God on and on about the good things that God wants to do to you or for you. And while those things may be true in their appropriate context, that is not the urgent message that people need to hear. What people need to hear, those who do not know, is that Jesus, the Son of God, incarnated, took on flesh, lived a human life, and died a human death in our place but that he rose again because of the power of God Almighty and that in his rising he defeated sin and death for all time and that anyone who will accept his death, his sacrifice in our place receives eternal life, eternal life from God. This must be the primary content of our evangelism. Now, secondly, we move on to Paul's method. So if the primary content was the the death and resurrection of Christ, what was his method? How did he go about doing it? And I've divided this method into three 
what you might call stages, although they don't necessarily have to be linear or chronological. But the first stage is dialogue. He establishes a dialogue. The first two verbs that Luke uses in chapter 17 to describe Paul's sharing of the gospel are, the verbs are reasoned, he reasoned with them, and he explained. Words that imply a dialogue. And we know that it was at least for three Sabbaths. So there is a building of some level of relationship between Paul and those who are listening to him. So originally there's some give and take. There's some attempt made on Paul's part to establish some common ground. And uh, a simple relationship. And while it's not absolutely mandatory for witnesses to know the people with whom they're sharing the gospel... It's almost always helpful to understand at least a little of their background and for them to understand at least a little of who we are. Paul reasons with them. He listens to where they are in the process. Remember, he's speaking primarily to Jews and God-fearers. They're in the synagogue, right? So I think Paul wants to understand what the Thessalonian Jews' understanding of God is. How familiar are they with the scriptures? How much do they believe? How does their faith live out in their daily life? Where are they as it relates to God? And that's going to help him understand how most effectively to share Jesus with them. And this is, sisters and brothers, this is just common sense. The better that you know somebody the more effectively you're going to be able to communicate with them. I remember when when I was a child, I'm sure Pastor Bill and and, and Mary, you remember this as well because it involved you, but um, Pastor Bill was invited to bring a message at a wedding. And it was at a very, very simple church. And it was for the wedding of a man who... Our, our family had a long history with him, but he had helped care for our yard and our garden for some time. Um, he had had a lot of difficulties in his life. He actually lived in our home for a short period of time. But anyway, uh, when he was getting married, uh, he and his fiancée asked uh, my dad, Pastor Bill, if he would bring a message at their wedding. It was in a very simple church, a very simple community. And uh, my dad, Pastor Bill, began sharing the message, and you could tell people were attentive. You know, here's this, wow, you know, this foreign missionary has come to speak at this wedding. And at one point in the sermon, um, Pastor Bill gave an example, uh, an illustration based on sports, something that other people have been known to do as well, right? Like myself. But even as a child, I remember in that context, you could kind of just feel this kind of cold come over the congregation, this silence. And we found out later that in this particular denomination, they viewed sports as a sin. Um, I feel so sorry for them. Um, And so obviously there was a, a deep awkwardness there, but we didn't know. We didn't understand. No one had warned us or told us. And Um, It was just an expectation that, of course, a pastor would never admit to liking sports, let alone in in being involved in them and using them as a good illustration in a sermon. The more that we know our audience, the more relationship that has been established, the more effective we're going to be in sharing the gospel. Now, there's a caveat here and a warning. 
even though this is a true principle, we should never use a lack of relationship as an excuse for not sharing the gospel when we have an opportunity. Because that's what we often can, can do as well. Well, I just don't know them well enough yet. Uh, it's a little awkward because we haven't established rapport. Well, if God's giving us the opportunity and he's opening the doors, then we need to take it uh, regardless of the establishing of relationship. But if we have the time and if we have the opportunity to establish a dialogue and build a relationship, that will help us be more effective in sharing the gospel. But, and now we're moving to the second principle of Paul's method. He does not remain only at that dialogue back and forth stage. Paul is, here's the second principle, uncompromising in presenting truth. He is uncompromising in presenting truth. So he begins and the verbs are reasoning and explaining, but notice how the verbs change. He moves on to proving and proclaiming. Two verbs that are much more focused on the communication from one side to another. Although all people are entitled to their opinions, not all opinions are of equal value. And Paul wants to build a bridge between himself and his hearers. He wants to understand them and establish some level of relationship, but he always keeps the truth as the goal. So when Luke uses those words, proving and proclaiming, he's making it clear that Paul's convinced that he's speaking the truth and that the truth is vital. And sisters and brothers, if we do not believe that the gospel is true, first of all, and secondly, if we don't believe that the gospel is exclusive, then why would we ever share with someone else? And if we don't believe those things, then I would argue that we don't believe the gospel. There's a, a young man that I know who um, was raised in a very good church, raised by very faithful Christian parents, and was taught the word of God from the time he was a, a very small child. And uh, he's now a man and married and has his own children. But I read that he wrote, recently in the context of ministry and he still very openly claims to be a Christian and is a says he's a believer but in the context of talking about evangelism he said who am I to tell somebody else that my religion is the only way and we see how that can creep into the church so easily either the gospel is true or it isn't if the gospel is true then what is the cruelest thing that we can do to others? Never share it. So we must be ready and willing to stand on the uncompromising truth of Christ. And you've been in, in, in relationships and friendships, maybe even in Bible studies, where it's just an exchange of opinions. Well, I think, 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 well, I think. At some point, there needs to be a communication of objective truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The truth must eventually be presented as exclusive and objective. So, as with Paul, we must maintain that uncompromising commitment to the truth of the gospel. Now, there's a third aspect of Paul's method, and that is a call to conversion. We're not told specifically that Paul called people to make a choice for Jesus, but it's clearly implied that he did. Verse 4 uses another verb, that the Jews who were persuaded joined Paul and Silas, joined. And so if they're joining a particular group, it means that they're leaving another group. Paul taught the gospel in such a way that a clear choice was revealed. There are only two responses to the gospel, to reject it or to accept it. And as witnesses, we need to call people to that choice. We need to invite them to that choice. We cannot live with one foot in belief and one foot in unbelief. We cannot live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. If you enjoy entertainment at the expense of other people, uh, go to YouTube and type in boating fails or boat fails. There are so many videos of people either getting into or out of boats. And what happens? They've got one foot in the pier, on the pier, one foot in the boat, and drift begins. That boat begins to drift. And you know what? People have to make a choice early in that process. And usually their first instinct is what? To try to pull the boat closer. It never works. And you know what happens if they don't make the choice quickly, one way or the other, boat or pier, they fall in the water, number one, which is hilarious, and it usually involves a significant amount of pain to a particularly sensitive area of the body where those muscles are ripped apart far beyond what they were intended to be. People doing splits that were never intended to do splits. You chuckle because you've seen this. I don't know if I should recommend that you go, you know, laugh at other people on YouTube. I've done it. I admit it. It's, it's, it's funny. It's hilarious. But the principle is you've got to choose one or the other. And so simply by the fact of not choosing one or the other, you choose. And the same is true with the gospel. By not choosing the gospel, by not choosing Christ, the person has made their choice. And we need to be proclaimers of that choice. That it is a choice. And a refusal to choose is a choice. And so as we share the gospel with our colleagues, our friends, our co-workers, our family members, we need to remember that the gospel calls us to a choice. And we need to invite people to that choice clearly. Sometimes we're hesitant to do that. Maybe because we feel like we haven't laid the foundation well enough. Or maybe it's because we're afraid that they're going to say no. But we can have an opportunity to offer that choice again. So remember Paul's methods. A dialogue to establish relationship. But then always with the goal of uncompromising declaration of truth and calling people, inviting them to conversion, to transformation in Jesus Christ, to exercising their wills to choose to believe. And yes, sisters and brothers, belief is a choice. It's not something that happens to somebody. It is a choice that people make.
So the content of Paul's evangelism is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His method involves what we've just talked about, dialogue, establishing relationship, an uncompromising exposition of truth, and a call to conversion. Now we ask the question for our final point, what is the foundation of Paul's evangelism? In both Thessalonica and Berea, Paul's witness is based upon the holy word of God, the scriptures. That is the foundation of his evangelism. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. The scriptures were the foundation for everything Paul was sharing, proclaiming and proving. Now, when he moves on to Berea, the scriptures are central again. Luke writes that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? You've heard me quote this verse before. They were more noble than the Thessalonians for two reasons. First of all, because they received the word with eagerness. They eagerly received the message. They were ready. They were open. But then there's a second reason why they were of more noble character. Because every day they searched the scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul said was true. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul was teaching and preaching from the scriptures. Nonetheless, they still said, wait, this sounds good. This is an incredible thing that you're saying, Paul, that the Messiah has already come and that Jesus is that Messiah, that he died, that he rose again. And you're, you're, you're bringing this all out of scripture, but I'm going to go to scripture myself and evaluate if you have interpreted it right. That's an amazing assertion. It's also a challenge, sisters and brothers, to us today because we have so much access to teaching that purports to be based on the Bible. I mean, there are thousands, if not millions, of sermons on YouTube, podcasts, you name it. You can find them everywhere. And with all that access, we should have that same attitude of discernment, which is we hear something that's preached or taught that is purported to be based on scriptures, but then we say, that sounds really good, but I am going to look at the scripture for myself. I want to evaluate the way that this person has taught, what they've taught in the light of God's word. With the Berean Jews, we see that they had a love for God's word. They had a love for the Torah, for the books of Moses. They loved the Psalms and the prophets. It was a value that was already in their hearts. And they were prepared to see if this new proclamation stood the ultimate test. Did it measure up against scripture? Of course it did, because scripture is a foundation on which and from which the gospel is preached. I want to draw this particular point of application to us in our context today. In two ways. First of all, for those of us who claim to belong to Jesus, we are his witnesses. The more thoroughly we know the scriptures, the more effective we will be in living for him and sharing his truth. Over and over, throughout the early days of the church, we see the apostles and church leaders speaking from the authority of scripture. 
quoting scripture, using scripture in their arguments and their explanations. We need to be constantly growing in our knowledge and application of God's word. And it's challenging because we we have this idea now because of the instant nature of Google and technology that we can find any Bible verse that we need to find in about 30 seconds using our smartphones. The problem with that is we don't have a context for God's word. And let me just say here, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but I want to say I am not anti-technology. I am not anti-device. I don't think it's wrong to have the Bible on a device that's of handy access. However, I I don't think that should be your primary interaction with God's word. Having it in a book form, it gives you a context even for where something occurs within the council of scripture. Um, I think most of us know where Genesis and Revelation are, but for those of us who have grown up in in the digital age, Do you know where the other books are and the order in which they are arranged within Scripture? And with with specific biblical concepts, do you know and have a good idea of where to find them? Do you know when it was Shakespeare that said something and when it was Jesus? Because we have that that, that issue sometimes. Well, doesn't the Bible say, oh, wait, no, that's Shakespeare, right? You know, or... uh, So we need the consistent personal interaction with the word of God, growing in our knowledge, right? And uh, I've used it, I've, I've said it before, but if the Bible is our spiritual nourishment, if the word of God is what sustains our spiritual life, then there's no one that I've ever met who says one meal a week on Sunday morning is more than enough for the whole week. In fact, I actually prefer that it be kind of a light meal on Sunday, Sunday morning. You know, lychee, you know, something easy, and I'll be fine for the rest of the week. Of course not. None of us say that. We all eat at least twice a week, right? Of course. Okay, at least twice a day, three times a day. When we're talking about our physical bodies, of course we nourish ourselves. So why is it that we think that a little bit of time on Sunday morning is sufficient for us to be fed by the word of God. Another aspect of this has to do with the importance of training ourselves to read and study the word of God on our own. What I mean by that is it's it's often easier to go read or listen to someone else talking about or writing about the word of God rather than going to the source itself. Now, of course, there is wisdom in study aids. There are wisdom, there's wisdom that we can receive from commentaries, from people who are wiser than us, who have had more experience in knowing and living the word of God. But a temptation is, is often that we never encounter God's word directly for ourselves. It's always through someone else or something else. My family and I love to watch cooking shows. And there are way too many cooking shows available now. Um, but you're watching those shows and these things that you're seeing, they're incredible. 
but I never got to taste them. You know, I never got to have them for myself. And there are many times where I'll be sitting there with my sons and we're like, oh, we want to try that. We never do. Actually, not never. We occasionally do, and it never turns out like what it turns out like on the screen. I mean, when we're talking about eating, do we say to someone else, listen, I'm really hungry. Would you eat this burger for me, digest it, and then give it to me? No, it's like, I want that burger for myself. I don't want it going through you first. (laughs) That's gross. Let's not even think about that. So, but the principle is, brothers and sisters, let's invest in the word of God for ourselves. Internalize it. Memorize it. Obey it and apply it. It begins as a discipline, but it grows into a love. A love for the word of the Lord, the life-giving, soul-nourishing, spirit-activated word of the Almighty God to his people. The second application about the scripture, if the first is that we need to know it, the second is that we need to use it. And specifically use it in the context of witness. And I've heard people say before, and I've thought it myself, I don't use scripture in the context of witnessing because people don't believe it. So if if they don't believe it, it's not going to carry any weight with them. So why should I reference scripture? That brings up a very important question. Is the word of God objectively powerful or is it relatively powerful? What I mean by that is, does the word of God only become powerful if someone believes it? Or is it objectively powerful on its own because it's the truth? For example, let me share with you some of my limited understanding of electricity. If I take an extension cord and I plug it into an outlet and I cut off the end of it and I pull, you know, there are two wires. See, there are two wires. In that, and there are actually many, many more. They're really tiny and they're wound together. But there are two major ones. And you pull them apart. And you clip off the ends so that you have exposed wire on the end. And you tell your friend or your enemy to plug it in and turn on the power. And then you take the end of one of those wires in this hand between these fingers. And then you take the hand, the the other end between these two fingers. And you say, I don't believe in electricity. And because I don't believe it, it has no effect on me. Really? Really? you would have an electrifying experience. (laughs) So the power of truth does not depend on that truth being believed. The power of scripture does not depend upon it being believed. Hebrews 4.12, you know this verse, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating, Sharp, incisive. And its power lies in the fact that it is the word of God and it is the truth. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to not be afraid to quote it, to allude to it, to use it in the context of presenting Jesus to other people. Because whether they believe it or not, it is powerful. It's the foundation of all of Paul's evangelism. Don't be afraid to use it. 
Now to bring all of this to a close, to conclusion, just a quick reminder that we've seen Paul's primer for sharing the faith, that the essential content is the death and resurrection of Jesus. His method involves the building of relationships through dialogue, but also an uncompromising exposition of the truth and a call to conversion. And finally, the foundation is the holy word of our holy God. But now here's the point. If God gives us a command and he shows us how to carry out that command, what is the expectation? That we would do it. I can understand those of you who might say, I'm not very good at evangelism. It doesn't come naturally to me. I want to tell you something. It does not come naturally to me either. I know some people for whom it comes naturally, and I wish I were those people. It seems like they always have the right thing to say, the right question to ask. They never are hesitant. They don't, they don't have, they're not, they're totally unashamed, and they're engaging in the way they talk about Jesus, and I want that. You know, for me, oftentimes it seems like the, the right answer that I needed comes about three weeks too late, and I remember it's like, oh, that's what I should have said. But if God has said, you are my witnesses, and he has given us examples of how to live out that witness, then the responsibility is for us to do it. How do we develop a skill? There is a period of time where we might say there's, there's research about the skill. But at some point, for that skill to be developed, it must be practiced. It must be practiced. And we can pray about it. That's great. And we should. But praying about it when we never act on it is an excuse. Lord, I've tried this. Lord, make me thin. Make me thin and muscular. Please. Now, maybe if I prayed and fasted, it might have some effect. But just prayer and never acting upon it, of course, not, that's not going to change. So if we say, I'm not very good at evangelism, I'm not very good at sharing my faith with people, that is a skill that is perfected through practice. So as the Lord gives us opportunities, let's practice it. Let's take it, you know, we're, we're not going to get it perfectly every time, but that's the grace of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who moves to bring someone from death to life. It's not us. We take the opportunities that God gives and we share. The last aspect of that is if we're called to take those opportunities, maybe God also is convicting us that we need to repent of not taking the opportunities that he has given us in the past. Because I know that there are some times that God has given me opportunities and openings, and I haven't taken them. Whether it's just sheer laziness or discomfort or uncertainty or fear, whatever it may be. 